What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Breakline Arena. We are so grateful that you are here. The Breakline Arena is a space that welcomes changemakers, hustlers, and leaders in the tech industry to share their journeys and passions and insights. We are hosted by Breakline Education, which serves to help top performers from underselected backgrounds land new and exciting roles in the tech industry. If you're a person of color or a veteran or a woman, there's info in the show notes about how to join our community. Now let's dive into the arena for today's special guest. Spencer Kimball, it's such a pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome to Breakline and welcome to the conversation. Thank you, Bethany. It's a pleasure to be here. So Spencer, Forbes recently wrote an article about your company and the the title of the article is Cockroach Labs Democratizes Access to Large-Scale SQL Databases. Can you talk to us about what that means? Sure. Probably helps to start with databases. Maybe not everyone's familiar with them. And certainly when you throw the word SQL in front of them, that might also be a little foreign to people. So what a database is, is think of it as an Excel spreadsheet, but very scalable. An Excel spreadsheet would apply to a small business or some amount of data that you're trying to understand that sort of on a personal level. Once you look at what, for example, Netflix needs to understand every single subscriber and what programs are interested and so forth, the amount of data becomes very, very large. I mean, millions, potentially billions of times larger. So you need a very scalable system. And that's that's what databases are. And there's been lots of different kinds of databases. SQL is just the sort of database. It's the most popular sort. It's what most of the businesses around the world have been using for the last 40, 50 years. And uh, there's other kinds, other kinds that are becoming quite popular, but SQL remains quite the mainstay. So in terms of democratizing, I worked at Google for 10 years, and they actually weren't satisfied with databases back in 2002 when I started. And so they started building their own. And you know they built many different kinds of databases, but ultimately they ended at a point which gives them a big competitive advantage. And that point, the best way to understand it is that in 2005 and six and seven, when Google really started to develop this, they actually had data centers all over the world. In 2021, there's data centers all over the world. There's you know 100 times as many of them probably, but it's the global public cloud. So even as a startup founder or an engineer or architect, you have access to something, the global cloud that looks like what Google had access to. And if you have the global cloud, you can do things very differently. You can build databases differently. You can make them even more scalable. You can make them so that they actually scale across continents. So that you know, users, if you get them in Australia, can have a great experience, just like your users in the United States. Same with Brazil and Japan, and you just you know, kind of expand your ambitions to encompass the entire world. That's what Google's always been doing. That's not something that most startups can do in 2021 without actually having access to that kind of technology. And interestingly, it's not just startups; it's actually many of the world's big companies. If you look at, uh, say, a big bank. Choose your big bank. Probably all of you have an account at, at one of the big ones. And they don't have access to the same kinds of resources that Google and Facebook and Apple can hire. They can't hire those kinds of engineers often. Those kinds of engineers don't necessarily want to work for them. Those big banks don't want to build databases the way Google built databases. But these days, they want to try to use those databases. So what we're really aiming at is how do we bring all of the learning that Google experienced in order to realize their opportunities? and bring those to a much wider selection of companies. So basically all of the Fortune 500s that aren't Google and aren't Facebook and so forth that aren't building their own databases. And that's the vast majority of them. But also 
you know, you expand further. What are the 2,000 or 10,000 largest companies in the world? They all need that help. What are all of the startups, all the new starts that are going to be created in the next 10 years, which are going to vastly outnumber, right? We're talking about hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of companies. We want to bring that kind of technology to everyone. So it's about making it cost-effective and making the complexity such that they do less and get more, right? So that's really what the democratization is about, bringing those big tech advantages to everyone else. Thank you, Spencer. And in your career, you talked about working at Google. You're also a serial entrepreneur, but you also worked at Square, another you know fairly large company at this point. So you've had both types of experiences. But in your writing, you talk a lot about how important it is to you to democratize this. You say, this is how big tech builds every product they launch. Now, anyone with enough ambition can beat them at their own game. You've talked about how this is how the big dogs play. And it seems to be sort of an ever-present dynamic in your mind. What is it about opening up access to this product that is that animates you like that? Why, why do you have so much energy around the democratization piece of it? Well, you know, ultimately I'm a developer and I've been one since I was 12. And you don't go very far in terms of building things for other people to use where you don't need a database. It's kind of where all the the data needs to go. And there's not many applications that don't have data, like a mortgage calculator online. It's kind of the one example that always comes up, but most applications have a database behind them. So I did a startup in the dot-com days before I joined Google. And that startup, I wrestled with databases. They just didn't do what you wanted. They weren't scalable enough. I went to Google, which is a really great place to be because I got to see a lot of smart people try to solve all these problems that I ran into. They solved it through fits and starts. Google barked up some of the wrong trees and had to come back down and rethink what they were doing. And ultimately, they ended up in an incredible place. And I saw the reasons they did it. I saw all the the sort of advantages of their global cloud that they were building and how that translated into better systems and faster iteration and new applications being built faster. And then I left Google and I got to understand, whoa, now I'm back on the, the real world outside of Google. And it's missing a lot of what Google's built over the last 10 years. And so as a developer in each of those different contexts, you, know, you realize what, what could you do better? And you actually got to see very helpfully what was done to make it better. And, and, and constantly, you're sort of thrown on the mercy of what you have available. So for me, it's always this expectation that there's going to be another role in the future. Maybe after cockroach, I I move back into trying to think what a consumer wants and build another consumer-based app. It's like, wow, when when that happens, I want to make sure that I'm able to use all of these learnings. And ultimately, cockroach is democratizing. You know, I say that, and it could be for like a, a big a big retail bank, for example, but it's also for my next startup. And that is the best impetus, right, for building anything. You're sort of your target audience of one, what would I use? And if you can solve it for yourself, there's a good chance to solve it for something else. I found that if you try to solve a problem that's not your problem for somebody that you don't really understand, you may not solve it for anyone. <laughs> so it's mm. great when you when you have that target audience of one where you know the interior workings of their mind pretty well because you spend a lot of time in that head. I love that. And, and you mentioned that you started Cockroach, you have two other co-founders. So there were three of you. And you've talked about the fact that it was not a fraught conversation by any means when you decided to be the CEO. You said nobody had any problem with that. And you actually said, 
you might have been the one who was least excited about it because it meant it was taking you away from development and really um, you really had a responsibility to be externally oriented while other people kind of built the technical infrastructure at the company. Will you talk to us a little bit about that experience for you? You know, the, the evolution from being a technical leader to a CEO and some of the things that you learned along the way. Well, happily, it was a very gradual experience. I mentioned I've been a developer since I was 12. And the reason that that continued until I was probably about 45 or 44, when my job really became CEO and proper, is because I love it. You know, I've always been working on some kind of project. and I, I like to get down and I can lose hours or days coding. You know, well, that's not my world anymore. Uh, if I had made that transition abruptly, I think it would have been extremely painful. Instead, what happened is, Cockroach was trying to build a product from the ground up, and we were all engineers in the beginning. So even though I was CEO, I was an engineer. And that got to continue for about three years until some of the more seasoned people that started to join the team that weren't engineers, like some other C-level execs, they were like, Spencer, maybe you shouldn't be programming all the time. We need you out there recruiting and raising money and things like that. And I saw the the wisdom in that, although it took me some fits and starts to, to let go of the desire to continue being an engineer. I think my co-founders saw that. And the reality is engineers are typically a bit more introspective and uh, like to just get their, their head down and work and code and so forth. And they don't like getting interrupted. And the CEO job, as you can imagine, is much more outward facing. And so you you have to become a little bit of an extrovert. Those two things aren't always compatible. So my, my co-founders, when we were all deciding well, who's going to take this job, I mean, we could have also recruited somebody to be CEO. But we'd done that in the past, all of us. And we realized, you know, this is a very technical company. We're, we're older now. We should take a stab at actually having one of us be CEO. I think they made the wiser choice. They're very happy right now. Meanwhile, I, uh, I just sit in meetings all day. That has its pluses and, and minuses. But overall, it's been quite a learning experience. You know, I think it would be not as full of life if all I did was continued as an engineer until I retired. Instead, this has forced me to learn new skills. And some of those have been very challenging, but I think ultimately it's widened my perspectives and probably made me a slightly more interesting person. <laughs> I'm doing this podcast probably because of that. So I love that, Spencer. And you're characteristically very modest when you say you sit in meetings all day. You've created something really special, not just the technology, but the environment. Cockroach Labs was listed in Crane's Best Places to Work, Forbes, Cloud 100 Companies, and other sort of top places to work lists. What have you found that that it takes to create a company that, that people love to build and want to be a part of? Oh, I mean, the, the first thing is the fish rots from the head down, as they say, right? So if there's anything that is a weakness of mine, it gets magnified in the organization. And there are some of those weaknesses, believe me. And anything that I can do right, if I do it right at the beginning, it, that also is uh, perpetuated. These patterns exist in the organization. They evolve as it grows and so forth, but they do persist. And with a little care and feeding, you can take the good one and you can invest in them. And so one of those is, is culture. And I know that's a fairly ambiguous term, but it is incredibly important. And it is yours to lose if you have it. And if you don't have it, it's extraordinarily difficult to build it. And we saw a very good culture at Google. It was uh, as pluses and minuses for sure, but I, I, I love the culture there. And that's why I worked there for 10 years. When we left Google and did a private photo sharing startup, which is what that next startup was that we worked on before we went to Square, 
we kind of assumed, all three of us, that the Google culture would just perpetuate in our startup. Of course, you know, we're, we're the co-founders. This, uh, this is going to be easy. <laughs> It'll be like a pretty great collegial environment like Google and everyone will be a high performer. <laughs> That's not how it worked out. So we didn't pay attention to culture and we got blindsided. And when we decided that we were going to do another startup after that startup, then we went to Square. Then we decided we'd do Cockroach Labs. The first thing we did before we incorporated or anything else is we actually wrote a manifesto on culture, not about what database we were going to build. I guess we kind of knew that already. But you know, the first real document we wrote as a team was, what are we going to do to both create a culture, start off that way, and then to make sure that we didn't lose it? And ultimately, you know, that was a very basic document compared to what's evolved over almost seven years now. But it was the right approach. And that actually got built into the DNA of the company. From like the very, very first week in operation, we were doing things on a weekly basis to make the company not just a place where hard work's done, right? You, you do lead by example there and you hire the kinds of people that you know have that mindset, but also one where people are friends. And the best way to make those human bonds and um, you know, build those relationships is by putting people into fun situations outside of their jobs. Right? So weekly dinners is something that's very easy to do when you're a small team. And we take these trips. Uh, we took down a trip down to the Dominican Republic, even uh, as a very early stage of the company. And boy, there's, that's a pretty excellent place to, to build friendships. And you realize as a company grows, there's lots of ups and lots of downs. And they're much more intense than if you have a job at a bigger company, because everything feels like, when it's existential. So when you get some good news from a customer, you're like, wow, we might actually make it. And when you get some bad news from a customer or a potential customer, well, we're not interested in this. I don't see why you're doing it this way. Or you get some competitor that shows up out of nowhere and they look really good. Oof. Then you're like, wow, what are we doing? Maybe we've just wasted the last year or whatever it is. It's moments like those where the strength of those human relationships creates a cohesion that allows you to, to move through those stormier periods. And uh, that applies at all stages of the company. And so that culture, the great thing about having that early culture is we were able to not just recruit people that appreciated, but people that really said, wow, I love this culture. And actually, I've been thinking about culture and here's my ideas and we can make this even better. And we have a number of those leaders, including our chief people officer who's been with us from almost the beginning. She was also at Google with us. And she has taken the culture that we had in its infancy and turned it into a, you know, an, an incredible, you know, larger company culture. We're almost at 400 people now at Cockroach Lab. So scaling that's been a challenge, but you can also make it even better. Thank you, Spencer. And you talked about sort of taking culture for granted when you went from Google to starting your company Viewfinder, which was later acquired by Square. How did that become apparent to you that you hadn't you hadn't put the time and the effort into it? Were people leaving? Were there difficult conversations? Was there friction? How how did you realize that you had underinvested in a crucially important part of the company? Yeah, uh, boy, it doesn't happen until things don't go your way, and when things don't go your way in a fairly painful fashion, ooh, we just launched three times and you know we're not seeing the kinds of engagement numbers that are going to make this thing worth continuing to do. Well, if you don't have friendships and everyone's really just kind of taking this 
I think healthy in some ways position, but it's just not, it's not full spectrum enough. But the, the healthy part of it is we're all going to come in here and we're working hard and then we're, we're, we're going to put our 110% into work and then we're all going to go and, and do our, our separate things. If that's all you have, boy, if your things are rocket ship, you can probably do pretty well. However, that's just not even the rocket ships. That's not really the reality internally. There's all kinds of bumps in the road. And when you have a big enough bump, what happens is people start to turn on each other. Sometimes, you know, it starts, it's not so bad. The friction's, you know, mild, but you start, it starts, it starts to exacerbate, you know, pre-existing thought lines and tensions. And if the bad news isn't, you know, leavened with some good news, then that actually becomes pathological. And people really start to point fingers and, and then you have breakdown of trust between engineering and product and product and marketing. And, and, you know, everyone's saying, well, it's not my fault. We, you know, we're not getting the support we need from this other. And if you don't have, uh, if you have friendships, you know, interspersed, it's not like everyone has to be great friends, but if you have friendships between those vertical or those functions in the organization, you can um, create a lot of, I guess, patience. Like, oh, no, 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 no. It's, it, it's not their fault. You know, you have someone on your team explaining to you, like, I know I've been talking to them They're They're actually doing the right thing. But, you know, the reality is that we probably built the wrong thing. and We need to move back. There's that sort of explanatory connective tissue that softens those blows and actually keeps people somewhat aligned and allows people to, um, you know, I think peacemakers in the organization to bridge those gaps and so forth. So a good culture of just it, you don't even realize those until they're activated. And then all of a sudden you have a, a culture that sticks together. Like we're one team. How do we how do we actually solve the problem instead of how do we blame other people for it so it's not our fault? Mm-hmm. Thank you, Spencer. I want to interject a question from Grant here. You you mentioned that if there are fault lines in a culture, they become easier to see when things are hard. And of course, starting and building a company is incredibly difficult. And Grant says, you mentioned in the Forbes article that your product liftoff felt slower than you would have liked because your potential customers were already using databases. So he's asking, how did you convince those early customers to make the switch, especially to a type of technology that was previously only available to the big guns, as you would say? Well, part of it is that it it is only available to the big guns. So you get to sell that dream a bit. It's also really important, especially when you have a sort of a a high friction product, like a database. And there's a lot of inertia to get some change to happen. And there's a lot of momentum that they're already running with the database, right? So it's kind of two sides of the same coin. It helps if that's the circumstance. And believe me, this helps across even when it's not the circumstance. But you need to have a 10x product. You need to be able to point to, to like a, it might not be fully realized, but this is the future. You need to go there. This is how much better things are going to be. And, and, and here's the cost of not doing it. And, and that's, if you have that and it's credible, and, and part of what made it credible is we came from Google and, and people saw what Google was doing and they realized, okay, well, I can kind of see the writing on the wall and that's the future. So that, that credibility is important, but that credibility and ultimately that the sort of value proposition, the promise, that's what can, can let you ride through that, that slower uptake. And part of that is you need investors that are going to understand that process. And they, they should understand it both because they have some knowledge of the industry, but they also should understand it because they have seen it before in other contexts and they recognize the signs. And it's like, this is, you know, they, they obviously go out and they talk to customers. They understand uh, what the team is, what the team's bringing to the table. But the support of investors, especially when you're an entrepreneur that is new to the 
to starting a company or you're new to being at a stage of a startup that uh, where you actually start to acquire customers. You might have done a startup that didn't quite do that or you were B2C and now it's B2B, whatever. Your those investors are critical advisors and, and honestly therapists. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that uh, any kind of slow start, it's great to have those advisors that can counsel you and say, well, you know, this is, this is not that unusual. This is sort of what you need to expect. It would be great if things just went very rapidly, but stick with it because you're on the right track. This is definitely something that that we believe in, and you know, no pressure. We're going to be here if you need to raise more money. We'll be here to, to help you do that. So forth. that's so interesting, Spencer. Thank you for taking the conversation in that direction. I wanted to just double click on that. Cockroach raised 160 million dollars earlier this year. You all have raised multiple rounds of funding, and so you've thought a lot about the types of investors and partners that you're that you're you're building around you and your team you just mentioned the importance of having knowledge of the space but also you know the importance of being able to be vulnerable with these folks who are betting on you for a financial return and so at the moments where you might feel most vulnerable that's when they also might feel the most vulnerable about an outcome can you talk to us a little bit more about that whole process of raising funding and what you're thinking about when when you choose the folks who are going to be sitting at that table with you. There's a lot to unpack there. I mean, certainly when you when you think about, you made a really good point. Typically, when you're feeling vulnerable, your investors can feel vulnerable, depending on what kind of investors you have. Because if they're new to the investing game, they're making a big bet on you. And if if, uh, if your company doesn't succeed, then that does not that's egg on their face. Let's put it that way. And so they can get very nervous. And that obviously does not help if you're feeling very nervous. It's sort of, uh, it's probably, um, you know, worse than the sum of the parts. And it's just, uh, it's, a, it's a bad cycle. You can, you can significantly ameliorate that risk by finding investors that are pretty experienced and have had a bunch of wins, right? Then they're, they're going to be much more tolerant. They're not trying to prove themselves on the strength of your success. And they're going to be more likely to say, no, we still believe in you. I know this isn't looking so good, but you know, here are some options to try and listen. If you swing for the fences and, and you strike out, this isn't the end of the world. You're going to do something else. Like That will be the advice they give you because they've seen it happen. And they've seen entrepreneurs fail that they believed in and then succeed on the next one or even you know, two or three companies down the road. So that's great. I think if I was going to give people advice on selecting investors, it absolutely changes over the course of a company's life cycle, what you're looking for. But at the beginning, which is probably the most crucial, argue it's the absolutely most crucial, you want to find a venture capitalist, let's say, or an investor that you have a huge amount of respect for. And that can be difficult. It's the same thing with co-founders, but hopefully you've had years of working with a co-founder. You know, that's the best way to do it because you really have great information and respect for them. With a venture capitalist, you're probably not going to have worked with them for years. That wouldn't really make sense. I'm sure it's possible in some, some ways. But you have access to a lot. Of, if they have some experience, you have access to a lot of uh, public information. And also, you can do references, back channel if necessary. They'll also give you references. So you get to talk to other entrepreneurs. And the best thing to do is if you can find an entrepreneur whose company didn't work out, how, how did that go with that investor? Um, but you know, if you can select for a very, very high quality investor, whether it's the firm or the investor themselves, that goes a long way. That first choice is an incredible signal to the market. So the next round you do, they're going to look at the who led the first round. And if that's a really good name, let's say Sequoia, that's one of the brand names or Benchmark, that's who led our first round. Those 
firms are are so at the top of the game that people are just going to assume, wow, like I don't even have to do due diligence on this. It's not a good assumption necessarily, but I, I don't even have to look very hard at this because if Benchmark invested, then this is obviously a great team and a great prospect. And I just need to do some you know, reasonable surface due diligence. I, I think that is a reasonable attitude to take because it's probably a safe bet. <laughs> so that's why it's so good to have a good VC if you can get one or a good investor. And it's not always possible. So if, if, if that's not uh, something that you know you can reasonably select for, then I think it's, you know, it's kind of like what's the what's the the length of time they've been doing it? Do they do they understand it? And then of course all of these need to be backed up by you know, interviewing, doing those reference checks on other entrepreneurs that have worked with them. Because this is and if the company doesn't succeed, you know who knows how long you'll you'll be interfacing with that person. If it does succeed, this could be the next ten, maybe even longer years. And, and this is going to be the first person on your board, and it's going to be you know it'll feel very real, like a like a marriage, a very intense relationship. And it's important to to really do your homework and select for that early investor. So, you know, just in terms of raising money, what are the most important aspects? I think maybe that's the last thing I remember from your question. TAM is a big one. So TAM means total addressable market. And this isn't always true, but if you are playing for a really big opportunity, it makes investing a lot easier, especially when the market's in a growth mindset, which it really has been for a long time now. That could change. Then venture capitalists might be very conservative and say, well, I want a, a business that's going to immediately generate cash and be very consistent and predictable. Right now, that's not the way VCs are thinking at all. In fact, they're, they want to say, what's going to be a billion-dollar company? I mean, that was literally five years ago. Now they're saying, what could be a $10 billion company or a $100 billion company? And it's hard to make a company like that if you're not playing in a big market. So if you have a big idea in a small market, you might find that that first round is easy to, to, to raise and then successive rounds are very difficult. So, you know, that's just something to keep in mind, you know, the dynamics of that, that change as, as things go. And, and then the other one, and it's quite related to that, whatever you're playing for, uh, whether it's huge market or a, a fast developing market that you think is going to be very large, you need credibility. I mean, need is a big word because there's always exceptions, but credibility goes a long way. And the best way to get credibility is to have worked in some capacity in that field or in that use case or with that idea. We had the big advantage of having come from Google and building distributed infrastructure there. We hadn't built a database and that's what we ended up building in Cockroach, but we'd built other distributed infrastructure that kind of looked like what you'd need to build a database for. So that gave us enough credibility. Oh, this is a good team. We can we can talk to other people at Google, you know, these guys for real, or are they, you know, full of hot air? They do their own reference checks and that makes a big difference. So one piece of advice I give entrepreneurs, like, if you really believe in your idea and, and it, you know you can build it, you know, you can just, just do what your intuition tells you, right? But if you're not so sure, I think it's a really good thing to do to to go in to a place that has some adjacency to that idea, that's a successful company, and try building it there. Try understanding it from that perspective. Get on that team. And I think you know that can feel like it's going to really slow down your desires and ambitions as an entrepreneur. But I think the reality is you will learn a lot. You might learn that the idea that you had was never going to be workable, but you will learn another idea that is just completely underserved in the market. And now that you're stepping from, let's say you were at a company like Facebook or something, now you're stepping from there to do something that's in the ad space or in the, the social space. 
your credibility is going to be off the charts compared to where it was before you took that job. So I think it's it's a really good thing to get some of that practical experience, uh, especially at a, at a name brand company. Uh, another option, which I think is amazing and maybe even better, is find a, a startup that is very, very mature and looks like it's going to IPO. Because the, the growth opportunities in one of those kinds of companies are tremendous. And Google, it's very political these days. It's still a great company, but you know, got more than 100,000 employees. You're going to, you, you go there and sometimes you go there to be on a project that's kind of out to pasture. And so you never really know what you're going to get. If you're super ambitious, of course, you can find your way to the right projects and learn everything you need to learn. But uh, a company that is, for example, 700 people, their prospects are likely to IPO in the next several years. That's a company where you can go and if you have ambitions, you can chart your own course. At a company like that, if you are willing to just grab things and run with them and do a good job, you'll be rewarded. You'll be given that. You'll be promoted like faster than you can imagine. So it's a, um, it's a great environment um, to really both accelerate your career, but I think also have a real success. If you think about what does it look like, we we're talking about credibility for those early VCs. If you were one of the early employees, and by early, I'm talking about like number 300 or something like that, at, uh, let's just use Cockroach Labs as, as an example, because we're, we're sort of at that stage right now. If Cockroach Labs succeeds and we go public one day in the future, and you were employee 300, and you know you you really pushed hard and you got promoted and you got in charge of something interesting, you can make a pretty credible argument like, wow, I was a big part of that success. If you go to Google and you're employee, you know, 100,000, 110,386, that's a more uh, nuanced story, right? You definitely can say, well, I worked on this project and you know, I, you know, there were 30 other people, and but I actually did these pieces and it was good and people will check on that. And then, that's good. It'll give you credibility. But being at uh, one of these early stage companies that goes through IPO, I think the, the claim is bigger and it should be. Thank you for that, Spencer. And Devante has a question. I mentioned to you, Spencer, before we we jumped into the main room that we had heard from Tomer Weingarten, the CEO of Sentinel One, last week. And Devante's question sort of dovetails on that. He says, can you speak to some of the security challenges that you and your team currently face at Cockroach Labs and how you're addressing those? Yeah, it's a fast evolving landscape with security. And I'm, I'm honestly not the expert. We have a number of different ways that you use uh, Cockroach as a database. And in some, the security burden falls on our customers and others, it falls on us. The traditional way that a database is used, our customers will take the software and they'll run it themselves. And they have to put it behind their firewalls. They have to have the right uh, security ops people that are looking at the permissions and the access controls for applications and administrators and background checks. So they're, they're basically doing all of the, the sort of physical IT security, trying to plug all the um, sort of social engineering attacks and so forth. So we don't, we have to take reasonable steps in terms of product design in order to encrypt the data, encrypt it as it's in flight and at rest and so forth. And we have all those kinds of capabilities in conference. I mean, there's, there's a long tail, which we don't do, but we kind of add every release, we add more. The more complex security landscape for us is we run now, and this is increasingly how people consume databases, but we run the database for our customers. This is what people call a managed service. And if you think about the advantages of that, it means that you no longer have to train, as a customer of Cockroach, you no longer have to train DevOps and system administrators and so forth 
on how to run Cockroach. That can be a pretty you know steep learning curve, and you're going to hire people, and there's a, certainly a cost to it. And then you got to keep doing it, right? It's not just the initial piece; it's forever. That is increasingly seen as not a core competency. It, it used to be because you had to do it, but nowadays with you know AWS and GCP and the public cloud. Increasingly, companies are saying, hey, we don't have to do this anymore. We're going to actually outsource it. And we're not just going to outsource it to anyone. We're going to outsource it to the actual creators of the database because they're going to do a better job. And they're going to be doing it for 100 other customers. And so their experience doing it for 100 customers means that 101 customer, they're going to do a really good job. They're going to have all the right ways of thinking about it. So that's the value proposition. Totally makes sense. But from our perspective, now we are on the front lines of battling any kind of intrusion. So it's a, listen, it's a, it's an incredible road forward. So there's all kinds of certifications and compliances. I think those are, those are kind of, they're important. They sometimes highlight gaps and so forth. But for the most part, I think they're sort of a, a, a checkbox. All the hard work is what you have to do on your side. And you have to be very innovative because it's an arms race. So, and, and, and interestingly, doing best practices and security isn't just hard because it's such a rapidly evolving problem to solve. It's also hard because the number of security, qualified security engineers and uh, sort of thinkers is, is very constrained. Everyone's solving this problem because everyone's having to build managed services. Those engineers are in short supply. So if anyone's thinking about a specialty, if their, their interest is computer science or computer engineering, Security is a, is, a, is a good one, and it is not going to stop being a good one because I think the threat landscape only multiplies. Thank you, Spencer. One of, the, one of the topics that you've touched on a couple times in the conversation so far is the importance of having empathy for your customer. You talked about initially having a customer of one you know, in your own mind and really deeply understanding a problem set or an opportunity set. And then also really taking on professional opportunities that will give you additional insight into um, the pain points that particular customers have. You have written about some of your favorite customers who are using Cockroach, and you posted fairly recently about a gaming company based in South Korea called Dev Sisters. Will you talk to us about this use case, how, how they have leveraged Cockroach to continue building their company? Well, gaming companies are, they're really fascinating to me because of the unbelievable scope and just how broadly interesting they are in terms of the customers they can get, how intense the participation is from their customers. And as a result, just how fast their database usage can grow. And that's one of Cockroach's you know, most important differentiators in the market. If you think about Oracle, most people have probably heard of Oracle. They make a database. It's a relational SQL database, just like what Cockroach is building from the perspective of the application. The difference is that Oracle, you know, they've been around since the 70s. They had an, an architecture that made sense in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. There wasn't a global public cloud, right? While Oracle was coming up to speed. And as a result, their database is very much, it's what's called monolithic. You put it onto a, a a single node. There's variations of that, of course, uh, that have evolved over time, but it gets bigger at a kind of a, an accelerating cost. And then there's a limit to how big it can get because you got to kind of put it onto bigger and bigger supercomputers. Uh, in the cloud, it's a very different story. And so what you can do in the cloud is you can say, there's all of these commodity um, rack servers, I mean, literally hundreds of thousands of them in a single data center. And if you need 
more capacity in a system like Cockroach, which is distributed, it will just, you can sort of feed it more of these rack servers. And it's, I'm giving you a, a very simplified idea of it, but you need it to get twice as large. Just literally, it's programmatically in, you know, just with some API calls, you can add another, let's say you have 10 of these servers that comprise your database, add another 10. And that can happen in minutes. If you need to go from 100 to 200, add another 100. I mean, it's, it's, it's really just like, how much more do I want to pay? But you pay exactly proportional to how much you use. And in fact, with Amazon, you get discounts. So it actually becomes less expensive as you get bigger. With gaming, some of these things need to get big. We've got some other gaming customers that are even bigger. But the amazing thing about uh, Dev Sisters is this, uh, they were they're basing uh, one of their games on using Cockroach. And it was a very small cluster to start because the game hadn't been launched. And then when it launched, it became very popular, like overnight. And so that scaling story was incredibly important to them. And I think that's a sign of the times. And it's not just gaming as a, a sort of um, use case where data can just get absurdly large in 2021, where people wouldn't have thought that was possible in, in 2015. You know, we came from Google, so we saw it was possible everywhere. That was an advantage because between when we started Cockroach and now, there's been a really an explosion in terms of the data intensity across the board, all use cases. But this this Dev Sisters game, it was a something about uh, gingerbread cookies. It's called uh, Cookie Run or Magic or Kingdom. I can't remember exactly what it's called. Really, really a cute game. It's probably something my daughter will play when she's a couple years older. But the idea that this cute game with this gingerbread man running around uh, could could use this massive operational database cluster, which is Cockroach, it was a surprise to me, but also uh, really quite amazing and, and, and uh, justified our thesis. Why did we build Cockroach in the first place? Exactly for these, these kinds of use cases. Thank you, Spencer. And we have a question from Andrew. He says, your website mentions making open source free again, and also both the database and the resources that power it should be perpetually free for small workloads. Can you expand upon this model and how it differentiates you from your competitors? Absolutely. So this is something that we broadly refer to as serverless. And the right way to think of it is, is this an extension of something I talked about earlier. So I mentioned that the traditional way of running databases is you self-host them. You run them yourselves. Increasingly, companies are saying, well, we don't want to run it ourselves. Let's let someone like Cockroach Labs run CockroachDB for us because they're going to do a better job and it's ultimately going to be cheaper for us and we're going to move faster. There's even another consumption model, which is, which is even faster, which is called serverless. And uh, in, the, in the context of a database like Cockroach, what serverless means is that even if Cockroach is running it for you, which we will be, you're not dealing with any decisions at all. This is just a database API now. When we run it for you normally, let's say you're a big company and you say, hey, we want you to run the database, you're still saying, well, how big does it need to be? Where should these resources be located around the world? And if it needs to get bigger, you're kind of making that decision, adding what we call nodes to, to the system and so forth to scale it. So there's decision points and so forth. And it's got like a, a sort of minimum price tag. With the serverless model, what we're doing is we're saying, we're going to make this even easier. Uh, so there's no minimum cost to it. So it, there's actually a free tier, which is this very generous way to start where you don't have to put any kind of credit card down. Uh, you don't even have to sign up for an account. You can just log in with GitHub or you know, it's an OAuth type thing. So it, it's like from, from landing on the site to having a, a, a database that can support quite a workload for free, 
is, is all of uh, several minutes and it can create the database in several seconds. And you can create multiple databases. So if you think about a hackathon or a just a hobby project that you want to stand up, or if you're an entrepreneur and you're doing a company, you obviously are going to need databases. You're actually able to ideate, get to market quickly and sort of fail fast, learn, launch the next thing, all of that without putting your credit card down for the database. I mean, this is revolutionary because databases are quite expensive and quite complicated. Now that complexity is gone, at least in terms of running the database and the price sensitivity, which is quite high for developers building these sort of early starts uh, is completely removed. So it's like free. And that's sort of the way things used to feel when open source was the dominant consumption model. So for those of you that aren't familiar with it, open source is, is kind of a, a contrary model of developing software from the way Microsoft did it in the 90s and Oracle continues to do it and so forth. It's kind of an idea of, well, let's make the ideas free and that will allow us to build software more quickly because we can put it out there and create a community and many people can contribute to it and many people can use it. We'll get all that information. We'll make the product better. And it's actually really become the dominant paradigm for creating software. The beautiful thing about that is it allowed people to use the software for what felt like free. Now they had to run it themselves. So that's actually a cost, right? but it doesn't necessarily feel like the cost. You had to put it on a machine, which is a cost. You might've just had that machine lying around. So it didn't really feel like the cost. Software and open source felt free. And that was a really wonderful feeling for people. In this new world that I've been talking about, where more and more you just go onto AWS and you're going to uh, select managed services and you're going to use those to build whatever your application or product is, things have stopped feeling free. The ideas often aren't free and the actual price tag is not free. So what we're trying to push for is like, we love that aspect of open source. I think it's the right way to for software to be built. And it's actually adds real value to the world that sometimes gets kind of captured and, and held close in the closed source model. And so we've built Cockroach as open source software, but as we increasingly run it for our customers as a cloud managed service, we also want that to feel free the way that open source felt. And so that's what serverless allows us to do. And, and serverless, we, as I said, there's a perpetually free tier with which you can use it that should get a developer well on the road to actually building a company. You know, as I look at the the list of companies that you've started and that you've joined, you had WeGo, Google, Viewfinder, Square, and then you got this company, Cockroach. And Demi <laughs> is asking, where does that name come from? It's a little unusual. Uh, so <laughs> I and my co-founder, Peter, have uh, always had a, a, sort of a sense of humor when it comes to names. So the, the, the genesis for the name is that one of Cockroach's big differentiators, I mentioned scalability and even geographic scalability. It's also resilience. So it replicates the data across different geographic locations. You can lose data centers. The database keeps on humming. And that's the beauty of it, one of the beauties of it. And when you think about cockroaches, I don't know if uh, probably most people have had some bad experiences with them, but they're pretty resilient. And uh, there was this, I guess, study where they looked at the effect of radiation on different animals and cockroaches were pretty much unaffected by it. So they realized, well, if there's World War III, these are going to be the last things that are left standing. So they've always had this reputation for extreme resilience, at least the, the group of cockroaches that somehow never seem to go away, even if you kill a few. And so that uh, the, the name just jumped out at me and uh, made me laugh. So 
that was back when it was just a project and I wasn't thinking about creating a company out of it. But then when a name sticks, you realize for all of the, I think, friction the name will generate, because some people will be like, what are you talking about? Why would I join that company? Why would I buy that product or spend any money on it? Uh, that might be an initial reaction for some fraction of people. But in the end, everyone remembers the name. And when you're a startup, having people remember your name is a, an unalloyed good from a marketing perspective. It creates what's called a, a familiarity bias. So even if people don't really know what you are and they'd heard about you before, oh, I've heard of Cockroach. And they have this like a positive feeling about it because it's something that uh, is, is on the sort of top of their mind. And so they, they kind of feel in the know. And that is an incredibly valuable thing, especially when there's lots of databases out there and they're named, you know, all kinds of random things. If you can stand out in the crowd as being something that nobody forgets, and once you explain the name, even people's grandparents can go, oh, yeah, that's a, that makes sense. And um, it seems like a valuable thing in a database. It's resilient. Spencer, and you've talked to us about databases. You gave us a great definition and understanding of the platform that you and your team have built. And the market that you are in is massive. I read one source that said it's growing to $60 billion in 2022. Can you talk to us? Diane has a question. She's just asking, what, what does the future look like for databases? Where, you know, what, what do the next three to five years look like in terms of the segment of the market that you all are in? It's a good question. There's lots of different kinds of databases, and the market's much bigger than 60 billion once you start looking at analytic databases, which everyone's probably seen Snowflake in the news. That's a a company that builds cloud databases that actually serve analytic workloads. Cockroach is on the operational side. So think of us as storing the individual line items in an order form or inventory management. It's like all the little pieces of data that make a company what it is, all the things you need to track. It's constantly, you're constantly reading these things, you're constantly writing them. They always have to be correct and they always have to be available. Otherwise, your business will stop working. I think about every single little piece of data that Amazon stores on every customer and every product's ever been sold and all the inventory and all the merchants. It's just a vast, vast amount of stuff. So that's the operational side. The reality is, I mentioned before, is that there's very few use cases that don't have an operational database. I mean, it's got to be that 99% of them have an operational database of some sort behind them. And that's why the market's so big. Because anything that's ever been built out there, every product that your bank puts out for you, everything that Netflix built, every single product to the smallest, to the largest, everything is backed by an operational database. So there are tens, hundreds of millions, maybe billions of instances of databases and what's amazing about the world we live in is that in the next 10 years, literally, let's say 2031, there's going to be more new use cases, more products and services built than have ever been built in the past. That's how fast things are. They're accelerating. There's an exponential happening in terms of what's being created. And all of those are going to have databases behind them. So you know, this market at 60 some odd billion for operational databases, it's growing 17% a year, and that's compounding. So it's it's doubling every uh, you know several years. I don't know exactly what the math works out to, but it, it's fast, and that is why it's been relatively easy for us to raise money. Right? It's not. There's other good aspects to the to the the company and and so forth over the over the years we've been in operation. But that's one that provides a lot of wind in the sails because people look at it and say, well, you know, if you even get a little bit of that market, this will be a good investment. That's pretty helpful. Uh, so yeah, it's. I think there's a bright future for operational databases. And, and really, the, the the trick to staying afloat in that competitive market is really to, to understand how things are changing, and they're changing very quickly. So it's not just the new things being built, but it's the way people are building. 
And it's always, how do we do it cheaper, faster, and better? You typically only get two of those three, but you know, everyone's pushing in that direction. So as long as you start you keep trying to think, you mentioned empathy for the customer, but you want to keep thinking what's going to make their life easier. And if you keep solving that, you can be wrong sometimes, as long as you're right, some of the time you, you, uh, you, you'll carve out a good future. Mm-hmm. Spencer, when you were talking earlier about investors and how to sort of weigh the different factors around choosing investors and who's who's going to be with you at around that table, you you mentioned Benchmark. One of the co-founders of Benchmark, Andy Ratcliffe, says the number one key success factor for any new company is size of the market. And the second is product market fit. Can you talk to us about how when you and your team realized that you had product market fit? Well, it's yeah, that's a it's a broad question, and it's one of those things that when you have it, it seems obvious that you had it, and when you don't have it, you don't understand how you're ever going to get it, and that transition happens sort of quickly, and it's hard to, <laughs> you know, if you get really good with your metrics, you might notice the transition point. We don't have product market fit in everything that we're doing. We're doing a number of different things now. So you introduce something new, and this is what most people have to realize. I, it, I'm sure it happens where lightning strikes and you end up with product market fit immediately on your launch. It's just people are like, wow, this is exactly what we've been waiting for. This is great. And the viral spread of your product sort of launches you into sort of a wonderful place overnight. That's not how it works in most cases. There's a Typically, what happens is you want to fail very fast. You can't spend too long building something. Now, unfortunately, with Cockroach, just to build the basics of a relational database takes years. So we weren't really able to fail fast, but we, we had some other advantages in that we'd already seen why Google built it, how they built it, and what that you know ultimate benefit was. And, and that uh, did allow us and our investors to take that longer view. But in general, with product market fit, in order to get it, you need to find ways to iterate. It's vanishingly unlikely that you're going to get product market fit in the first stab. So you need to get that thing out there, get feedback. You know, one of the ways we did that actually, even before we got to a workable product, was that we published our design and people were reading it from all over the industry and commenting. And to the extent that that was popular, you realize, wow, people are interested in this. That's a good signal. We don't know if they'll use our database because it's not usable yet, but they like the idea. That's, that's a great signal. And then we started the project and it was open source. So it was in GitHub. And uh, you can star projects in GitHub as a developer. You see something that catches your interest. And then we we would uh, do various things. We had very early previews and we'd blog about it. And people on Hacker News would read it and be interested. And you'd see how much traffic you got. So you can get this information from the market, but you need to get out there. I'll tell you, like, I'm going to make a slight digression. The worst failure mode for an entrepreneur is believing that your idea is very precious and that if you tell people, Someone else is going to steal it and run with it. And therefore, you don't, you're afraid to tell people the idea. You're asking everyone to sign NDAs. What you end up doing is you, you build in a bubble because you're, you're afraid to tell people. And when you tell people, people will tell you what they think. <laughs> and, and sometimes they'll say something which you, know, you don't really want to hear, but you know, you, you'll, you'll, you'll leave that meeting or you know, read that comment somewhere and you'll you know, have a bad day and uh, sleep on it. And then you're like, oh, you know what? Well, actually, I think that that's not valid, or this is the mitigating factor, or actually, no, we need to change what we're doing so that we're going to do better than that. We're going to overcome that problem. So that sort of exposure, think of it as an information asymmetrical advantage compared to somebody that's operating in a bubble. 
right? So the, the bubble is, is, is a, it's a bad place to be because you can go a long time in a bubble and then end up with something that people, it's just like crickets when you release it. So, you know, getting those, those, those at bats as many as you can early and being flexible and an open mind and kind of just keep, keep iterating and, and, and being okay to fail or to have the, the wrong idea. That's important. So I, my, my perspective on, on everything is that ideas are cheap. Execution is extremely hard and it's what's going to differentiate you. So you can have an idea, share it with everyone. People will be like, oh, yeah, I heard so-and-so is doing something like that. And you're going to be like, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that someone else is working on my baby, right? And well, you, you go and you look at what they're doing. You talk to them. You tell them that what you're thinking. And you realize they're doing something a bit different. And your idea is actually better. Or you want to partner up with them. That's just a much better road to be on. You will win or lose depending on how you execute. And your idea, it's not worth the papers printed on. I'm telling you. Just because someone else has had it. In fact, many other people have had it. They probably have had it better than you, if you're going to be honest, because the world is very, very large. But the one thing you have control over is just how much you're going to go after that idea, how hard you're going to go after that idea. And that is how you win. Absolutely. Spencer, you are dropping gems over here. I love it. And I see we have just time for one last question. You mentioned earlier that Cockroach is actually in a stage at around 400 employees where you really encourage people to try to join those companies because of the growth curve and because of the halo effect as well. If that company goes on to be successful, it's clear that you've been able to put your stamp on it as well. What are you looking for at Cockroach Labs in terms of how you're building your team, who you really want to bring on board to to help you and, and the existing team take it to the next level? Well, we, we have a careers page. So if folks are interested, that'd be the first place to look and you'll see that there's a very broad spectrum of roles that we hire for. And I think that would suit probably uh, some interest that everyone on this call has because it goes from you know, folks that are doing marketing to sales and there's all kinds of different aspects of sales and support and architecture that work directly with the customers. There's engineers of all different stripes working on core database problems, distributed systems problems, front end problems like React and Redux and, and, and that sort of, um, that's sort of, which come a, a huge aspect of things for us as we're trying to deliver cockroach e- with less and less complexity, easier and easier on- online. So there's, um, yeah, there's a vast spectrum. And I'd say, you know, there's something that we select for across the board. It's, it's absolutely, culture, but, you know, and clearly how suited are you to the job? Every single role that we hire for, every single one, an EA to a VP or, you know, a C-level executive, they go through an interview process, which feels the same. And that interview process is a, you know, at least four, ideally five interviews that are all exercise-based. So what we try to do is we, we try to give people exercises that are almost exactly what a proxy that you can get in an hour that has something to do with the job you're going to. <laughs> and we've open sourced these questions so you can go and, and, and look at the questions for the different roles. And uh, sometimes there's you can, there's a take home part, but mostly they're in person. And you know, yeah, we're looking to see how you answer the question, how you approach the process. It's not always, the right answer is not always you know, gonna be required. Sometimes it can be like, how, how, what's your thought process? And you know, everyone's sort of judging that. But most of these questions have a, I think, a good answer and a bad answer and everything in between. Uh, let me just give you an idea because this is something that I think everyone will will immediately understand. So we've had uh, EA positions in the past. I don't know if this is still the interview slate, but when I when I was interviewing for that role a few times, we had a 
I'll give you two of the questions because they're pretty interesting. So one was there's a, imagine that there's a conference and these three people are going to the conference. Here are their travel schedules, you know, their calendars. And we'd like you to find appropriate airline travel that, you know, is has a good price to it that actually meets the scheduling constraints. Find a hotel that's close to the convention center that's within this price range. And then, you know, sort of organize all that information with the, the, the total costs and things. And so, you know, someone spends an hour and they use Google and they go and they look on the travel websites. Like everyone's done that personally. Some people probably consider themselves pretty good at that. Well, that's a big part of that job, right? You're going you're gonna to be organizing those kinds of things for, for folks at the company quite a bit. And you, you want somebody that you know, is familiar with it, has a good outlook on it and judge like, you know, which hotel they'd choose and so forth. And so what's, what's fascinating about this is as you get three or more candidates, you, you immediately see the, the, the different levels of skill on that particular question. But there's five questions. So, or four, I can't remember how many in this particular case, but so you get, you get different people that are judging the different candidates on each of those sort of dimensions. And then they get together and they, they try to make a decision. So we, we try to make everything a, an exercise where there's like a, a fair rubric for whether you're going to succeed or not on the question. It's not like, tell me about a time in your past where, you know, you had a problem with a superior or like a manager or whatever, right? You know, how did you handle that? Or that's a question where someone's personal charisma, which is important to be fair, but that's just dominates, right? It controls. There's not a right answer to that sort of question. It's kind of like, do I like the way the person sounded is much more likely of the signal you're going to get. Whereas if you ask someone to actually schedule some itineraries, you're going to find out whether they can do it. And if they can, how well they do it. And you know, you'll be the judge of that. Another one, which is just to finish this up, I know it's been a long-winded answer, but there's an email, a real email chain that happened between the founders of the company and, and uh, a venture capitalist. And like the names are sort of blacked out on it. But you get the email chain and it's quite long and it got quite heated. <laughs> and, and you say, hey, this is your first day of the job. Read this email chain and you've got to decipher what the heck's going on with these different personalities and you've got to solve the problem. <laughs> so write, write the email to this irate person and apologize on behalf of that or do whatever you need to do. And then we kind of throw them a curveball, a response to that mail. And then you get to see how quickly can someone write with their grammar like, are they familiar with like, you know, annoying long email chains where people are like responding to things too often, you know, you get the idea, right? Everyone has to deal with that. But, you know, some people do it better than others. And ultimately, that's a another kind of dimension that you really want to select for for that role. So I went way off tangent there. Sorry. But I, I think that the way that we do hire is we try to make it as fair as possible. And another idea we've had is that we don't look at people's resumes before they are interviewed. So you look at their resume after you've written up your feedback. What we want to do is we want to avoid biasing our interviewers against people based on, for example, where they went to school or what other companies they've worked at. Like that's good information, but you want to say, well, how well are you going to do on this coding question? If it's an engineer, for example, or how well is, is someone going to you know, figure out the travel schedules in the case of the EA? And I don't want to know like, oh, they went, they worked at that company. Well, you know, I don't really have much respect for that company <laughs> or that university or whatever it is. That's, that's a really biased outlook. And uh, I found that um, those, in my experience, it's kind of inevitable that you have that, you let those biases creep in. So we say, hey, you know what? Just interview this person fresh. You don't need to know anything about them. Figure out how they do on your question. Write that up. Then look at their thing. And then actually, you even look at all the other people's write-ups on that person. And then you all come together and you make a decision. And that's, we're just trying to 
to make sure that everyone gets an equal opportunity. I love that, Spencer. You're preaching to the choir here. We would love to see more companies hire based on capabilities and aptitude rather than sort of arbitrary stamps of approval. Thank you so much for your time today. Such a treat to have you with us. Really, really appreciate that you shared so many insights and gems with our community. That's my pleasure. I enjoyed the opportunity to connect with all of you. All right. Thanks again, Spencer. And to everyone, have a great afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Thank you guys so much for joining us for another episode of The Breakline Arena. We're hoping that you're walking away feeling a little moved, a little inspired. And if you really had a good time, feel free to head on over, rate, subscribe, leave us a review. It does help us spread the good word, keeps these good vibes rolling. Yes, we would love to hear from you. Thanks again, and we will see you next time.